to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Hillary Clinton's loss in the 2016 election came as a shocking disappointment for millions who had hoped to see a woman elected president and for those who viewed Donald Trump as a serious threat to women's rights. In a new book, Jennifer Rubin writes about the period of time from the first Women's March held the day after Trump's inauguration to the blue wave in the 2018 midterm to the flood of female presidential candidates in 2020. Women from across the ideological spectrum entered the political arena, marching, organizing, and running for office. Jennifer Rubin writes op-ed columns for the Washington Post and is a frequent MSNBC contributor. Her book is called Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. It's published by William Morrow, and I'm very pleased that it brings Jennifer Rubin to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, for years, you were considered a conservative, weren't you? What happened? Well, I think uh, we no longer have a viable conservative political movement in this country. I was initially attracted to the Republican Party because it stood for things like a strong national security, American leadership in the world, human rights, the rule of law, free markets, free trade, robust legal immigration. And none of those things um, can be found anywhere in sight uh, within the Republican Party. Moreover, it's not only repudiated those positions, but it's really repudiated democracy itself. And we saw that on January 6th, and we see it continuing to this day as they attempt to discredit elections, as they attempt to limit uh, access to the ballot. And so whatever... um Hello? conservatism means anymore uh, to Western uh, democracies and ours in particular. How did Trump and his followers respond after you wrote a column critical of him in 2015? Well, I had been critical of them, um, you know, for some time. And uh, I think um, for a while they didn't really care because there were many Republicans at that point who were criticizing Trump. I think when he got the nomination and the party expected everyone to fall in line, that's when they started getting um, rather upset with me and the few others um, who had uh, decided that this was not the party for us. So I think the real impact and the real uh, sort of fit that they threw didn't occur until Trump became a nominee. And I made the argument that, um, you know, Party loyalty doesn't mean much when we're talking about the survival of democracy. We're talking about the, the notion of a multiracial uh, democracy. We're talking about the rule of law. And, um, and they did not take kindly to my lack of uh, party loyalty. If a more mainstream candidate had been nominated in 2016, let's say Jeb Bush, would you have remained a Republican? I could well have. Um, you know, Jeb Bush was someone who um, I definitely appreciated um, in terms of his governorship. He had um, done work on education. He was really, really running as kind of the anti-Trump, moderate, mainstream conservative in the mold of, uh, say, Mitt Romney. And I had been relatively comfortable um, within the party. Um Clearly, um, the rise of this intolerant uh, authoritarian movement within the Republican Party was deeply troubling. But had he run a decent campaign and picked a decent vice president, uh, I probably would have supported him. 
Did you believe that Hillary Clinton would win the election in 2016? I absolutely did. And uh, I think I and the book talks about uh, millions of women who were stunned, gobsmacked, that she didn't win. After all, here was one of the more qualified people to run for president, losing to someone who was entirely unqualified, (laughs) and moreover, has shown such disrespect towards minorities, towards women, towards the Constitution, Um, and it was really a head-spinning moment. Um, I had thought better of the American electorate, and uh, I think uh, those of us who had expected um, common sense to descend and uh, Hillary Clinton to somehow shake up her campaign um, were disappointed. It was a very, very close election. A few thousand votes in the right states would have changed the outcome. Um, But that's not, uh, of course, what happened. Do you think that a male Democratic candidate might have been more successful? Was it a a male-female image uh, issue, do you think, to some degree? I don't know. Um, And and it, it is hard to say. Um, I think the central issue, uh, or actually two central issues for Hillary Clinton, is she personally, for whatever reason, and I think it is gender-related, had just become a magnet for, um, you know, hatred and um, really um, unhinged uh, opposition, so that it made it very difficult for even independents, but certainly disaffected Republicans um, to vote for her. Some of those people voted third party. Some of those people left it blank. Um, some of those people uh, crossed their fingers and thought, well, maybe Donald Trump really isn't that bad. And the other problem is that she ran really as a status quo candidate. And clearly what voters wanted in 2016 was someone to change things, someone to do things differently. And Donald Trump sure did that. Um, the changes were very bad. The changes were very dangerous. But I think her campaign missed um, the desire for change and the antipathy towards Washington. So whether it was a man or a woman, I think Donald Trump was infinitely beatable. Um, it just was not the right, right candidate to do it. Well, as you interviewed women around the country, what was the range of reactions to his unexpected victory? It was overall shock um, and great dismay. After all, it was not just the defeat of a woman presidential candidate. This was someone who had specifically antagonized and demeaned women and someone who had um, at least indicated um, he didn't have much tolerance for democracy and democratic institutions. So I think the initial reaction was uh, shock and horror. And for women in particular who had made progress in the decades before, but whose every so often we it seems we get a dropout here. Economic trajectory um, has, and uh, together with the abortion issue, which uh, remained a major concern, and does to um, this day. To this day, um, they sensed that something was deeply wrong and that um, they struggled to understand how the country could have elected him and what it meant for them personally. The title of your book is Resistance. When did the term resistance begin to be used to describe the opposition to Trump? It was relatively shortly after the uh, election. It was actually in 2020. And um, I think it started sort of as an Internet uh, meme. And soon uh, the Center for American Progress, which was the 
major uh, progressive think tank that in some ways uh, helped organize the resistance adopted that uh, term. And Do it you just think it was stopped. meant to evoke the French resistance during World War II? Uh, either that or, um, you know, the Star Wars resistance. Um, I think it had lots of origins, but it, it, it communicated the notion that those in power um, were doing very dangerous, bad things and that people could resist. They didn't have to go along. And I think that was absolutely critical. Um, one of the things that the head of CAP at that time, uh, who has since gone to the White House, uh, near attendant, had said, is that one of the difficulties is when an authoritarian figure takes office, and she used the example at the time of Viktor Orban in Hungary, um, the opposition tends to become demoralized and passive. And that was a great concern. Mm. So using a term like resistance was an effort to encourage people um, to do something, not to simply sit back and say, all right, the next four years are going to be a disaster. I'll just hide. And um, I think that spirit of not simply hiding was, in fact, what took root very quickly among women. Uh, I tell the story even before the mar march in November, December, women who had commiserated, who had uh, been hoping for a Hillary victory, um, and Republican women um, who had opposed Donald Trump began to network, began to think what they could do. Some of them formed new organizations. Others decided that they were going to become politicians themselves. The major progressive organizations um, set out the battle plan, if you will, at Emily's List, at CAP. And things uh, were already well moving along when the Women's March came. And, of course, that was a tremendous boost. That was very affirming for women to know that um, there were many, many, many people um, like them who were not pleased and that they could do something if they banded together. And politics really is not a passive activity. It's not a spectator sport, nor is it an individual sport. And they really showed great tenacity and skill in helping to knit together um, an opposition that could unseat Donald Trump and could block many of his initiatives. What role does Emily's List play in this story? First of all, is there an Emily? No, there's not an Emily. <laughs> um, it's uh, an acronym, actually, for early money um is yeast, meaning everything kind of rises. And many of the women who were first-time candidates in 2018, including Katie Porter, who I uh, talk about a lot in the book, um, used Emily's List as um, a, a resource. In its broadest sense, Emily's List raises money, lots of money, millions of dollars for pro-choice women. But it really does more than that. It serves as a resource. It helps train women candidates. It helps them connect with the sort of people, campaign managers, uh, communications directors that a first-time candidate may not be aware of. So it's, yes, a money raiser, but it's also a candidate enabler. And that really was seen uh, in 2017 in the then Virginia 
legislative races where many women ran, women uh, who were not kind of the standard ca candidates, who were not uh, particularly uh, political before that. And it certainly happened in a big way in 2018. Following the 2016 election, how did Emily's List CEO, Stephanie Shriak, try to reassure staff and volunteers and encourage them to remain in the political fight? Well, I tell the story of her coming into um, the offices of Emily's List, and it was like uh, a disaster area, both physically and emotionally. But very quickly, she discovered that there was a tremendous need uh, and a tremendous desire for women to run for office and to stay engaged. It usually happens in political organizations that after a presidential election, the money dries up pretty quickly. People have spent their last dime. And so the last few months of the year are pretty dry. And in fact, Emily's list had traditionally set aside money so they could meet payroll during those last few months. It's also not a time where a lot of people are making a decision to run for office because we've just had an election. Well, contrary to all that, hundreds of thousands of dollars pulled in poured in on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday following the election. And when they decided to set up a training uh, session for potential candidates, they were swamped. Um, and that gave them, I think, um, some hope, some um, somewhat of a lifeline that uh, perhaps women were not going to simply be passive and that there was a tremendous energy uh, behind women who wanted to do something. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin, who's written a book called Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. It's published by William Morrow. What about Leah Greenberg and her husband, Ezra Levin? What kind of constructive advice was in their 23-page guide called Indivisible? This was a couple who um, had been heavily involved in really policy areas and had worked on the Hill. And after the election, um, the circle of their acquaintances, friends, colleagues, um, very much progressive, um, were essentially bombarding them. What can we do? What is to be done? And so they put together a sort of organizing document, a how-to. How do you hold a meeting? How do you organize your neighbors? What do you do to reach out to your elected leaders? How and do you find the right the cause the, the causes and candidates that you want to target? Exactly. And so because they were sort of being inundated, they said, all right, we'll just create a Google document, we'll put it up there, and we can just direct our friends and colleagues to that. Well, the document um, kind of crashed um, and because it was uh, so widely sought, and it went viral. And within a very short time, uh, they had thousands, tens of thousands of people. And it really kind of filled a felt need. There was no entity, at least on the Democratic side at that point, that could take policy positions or take um, a message and activate that, target it in lawmakers' home districts, home states, and really bring about some much-needed change. And they figured out a formula for finding these major 
causes, but arming their troops with the information, the data, um, the support that they needed to talk to their lawmakers, to protest, to recruit candidates, to run themselves. And so this was another network uh, that was really self-made um, entirely from the ground up. And I spoke with uh, Leo for the book, and she said something very stunning to me. Um, she said about 75% of her members were women. And I asked, gosh, why do you think that is? Because it wasn't, it wasn't uh, designed to be specifically for women. Correct. It was really a progressive organization. How do we recapture um, American values, American democracy, and defend gains that they had made in the past? And she had a couple theories, um, which I think to a large degree were accurate. One was these were essentially middle class women who were relatively comfortable in life. Other people may be at risk at losing health care, but they weren't. And yet this election, which hit them like a ton of bricks, suddenly made them feel insecure in American society. Their political rights, their economic future were suddenly put into turmoil. And I think the second was a large number of these women who joined Indivisible and showed up in other networks that were smaller, but uh, very much active throughout the country, were mothers of school-aged children. And they often said to me, I thought about what I would tell my kids, what I had done um, during this period of time. And that's a pretty compelling uh, sort of motive uh, for entering politics. So I think um, when I saw this kind of playing out um, and I began to look for evidence of uh, women's self-organization, it became very clear to me that the resistance, although there were plenty of men and plenty of uh, male candidates, um, was in a very real sense geared to and run by women. And um, that was kind of the genesis of the book. What is going on here? What are they doing? How are they doing it? And it was actually a very uplifting experience during a very tough time in American politics for me as this was playing out on the national scene, because what it told me is that um, it was possible to fight back. Um, people could be active citizens. You didn't need a political science degree or any kind of degree to organize your neighbors. You didn't have to have run for office or spent your time in uh public service to run for Congress. Many people uh, who ran in 2018 had not run for office before, that you could do this. You had to be determined. You had to be have some organizational skills, which women clearly have. And you had to have some resources um, to be able to um, communicate with others, to be able to organize yourselves. And one of the things that impressed me as well is that this was truly a grassroots effort. These women were watching the returns to their dismay with half a dozen or a dozen other friends or colleagues, neighbors. And within a few months time, they had put together networks of two, three, four thousand people. Hmm. Some of those people ran for office. Many of those people worked on campaigns. Others became donors. And it was really a very organic 
experience um, and something that I think was a bit unexpected in American politics. We've all heard the demise of civic organizations and Bob Putnam's uh, famous bowling alone, that we've all become isolated and passive and all politics is now national. This really pushed back on that narrative because it showed that when people organized themselves and their neighbors, they got a lot of bang for their buck. And then when they directed their energies, their protests, their calls, their emails at people in their districts, that made a big difference. If they could show a congressman or a congresswoman that X number of people in your district are going to lose health care if the Affordable Care Act is repealed, that's very meaningful uh, to that lawmaker. So they had a notion that a big organization could nevertheless be locally activated, could use data, could use information, and bring about change. And, and then there were even local organizations like the one in Los Angeles called Hangout Do Good, which immediately attracted 2,000 members. But but in the case of uh, Indivisible, it went from being a, uh, a uh, an organization with 40 paid staffers and a $12 million budget to something much larger. What is the situation yes. now? Are, are Emily's list and, um, and Indivisible still striving or has uh, have things died down? Well, they are still there. And the great challenge looking ahead is whether that same energy and that same effort will be applied going forward. It is very understandable that a lot of people are very burned out. Not only did they spend four years fighting, um, but they had to endure COVID. And as we've now found out, um, the economic, um, mental health um, and other burdens have have fallen disproportionately on women. So asking them to then pick up and do it all over again, because 2022 suddenly looks scary, is a bit of a a big ask, but that's what they're going to have to do. And I think those organizations right now are looking for the sort of message, the sort of opportunity to get people back in the fight, to tell them, sorry, our job is not quite done yet. There's a lot of work to be done and to give them the energy and the tools and the money um, so that they can uh, once again run good candidates, help them win, uh, hopefully uh, from their standpoint, hold on to the House, uh, hold on to the Senate. Um, And I think their uh, notion is they've got a roadmap now. They know how to do this. Um, The question is getting people to pick up the map once again and follow through. And that's going to be a challenge. Didn't the idea for the Women's March start in Hawaii? Teresa Shook, a a retired lawyer, put a post on the Pantsuit Nation Facebook page the day after the election that invited women to participate in a march. She couldn't have anticipated that 10,000 people would sign up by the next morning. No, she and didn't. Then and then there were 650 marches around the country. Uh, yes. it, is it possible to even estimate how many people wound up participating? I know I was marching in the one in New York. Well, I think there are all kinds of estimates. Um, the one, the, the one conclusion that I think all the uh, statisticians come to is it was probably uh, the biggest single day of protest in American history. And I don't think those women, just like the indivisible people, could ever have imagined this felt need. 
But both the Women's March and Indivisible tapped into something that was very real, um, that had been untapped in the past because many of these women, most of these women, had not been political actors. Um, they had voted. They generally knew who their representatives were. Um, but some of them were quite honest and said, I didn't even know who these you know, city council people were, who my state representatives were. And I certainly never worked on a campaign. I certainly never thought about running for office. And that changed things. And I think it was an inspirational revelation to see that this is what the founders wanted. They did want citizen uh, elected officials. They did want um, a to avoid a class of um, political leaders that were separate from the people. And so the realization that they could do this and they needed to do this was, to me, a, a very strong reaffirmation of democracy. And so while democracy was taking a beating around the world and from Donald Trump and his followers, um, there was also this grassroots movement that was very affirming that said it's our it's within our ability and it's our responsibility um, to become politically engaged. And I don't think, um, frankly, without Donald Trump, you would have had that. I think if you know, Jeb Bush or some other Republican had won, um, there might have been concerns about uh, abortion access. There might have been concerns about the court. Um, there might have been concerns about climate change. But I don't think you would have had this outpouring of anger, fear, anxiety um, that Donald Trump did produce. Well, did the wide variety of homemade signs indicate at the marches indicate that people had many motives for attending? They certainly did. And initially, this was kind of cause for some sniping from the media who kept asking, well, what do you want? What do you want? Mm -hmm. What do you want? And. It was actually the wrong question at the wrong time. Um, many of these women were first discovering what participatory politics was all about. And many of them had causes that... Like, the, like, like and, opposing the Muslim travel ban. Correct. Uh, and thousands of people rushed to the airports spontaneously, really, to uh, assist these people and to try to um, provide legal assistance to them. But... What over the overarching message of the march, and that became kind of the mantra for the next four years, was that um, we have to put whatever small differences we have on individual issues aside and band together in order to protect America and protect American democracy. And that was the reason for the word indivisible. Uh, it was meant to. Uh, direct people to the notion that, you know, now is the time to band together. Now is not the time to, to fight over uh, second and third level issues. And that message really resonated. And they were able to put together a very broad coalition that included women of color, that included white women, that include college educated women, non-college educated women, and disaffected Republican women as well. So it was remarkably successful in large part because they kept it very broad and they kept it uh, tied to the future of democracy. Well, well talking and about I women of color, 
Didn't Brian Kemp, then Georgia's Secretary of State, win the governor's race against Stacey Abrams in part because he purged a million voters from the Georgia rolls? He certainly did. And um, I think um, although that was a debilitating loss, not only for Stacey Abrams and for Democrats and for the state of uh, Georgia, um, that also set off a, a new movement and gave life to an existing organization that she had founded sometime earlier, um, which was uh, eventually became uh, known as Fair Vote. And this was an effort through organizing, through uh, legal action um, to expand ballot access and to make sure people could get to the polls, to make sure people understood their right to vote, to expose efforts to illegally thwart voting. And they were able to incredibly boost turnout, particularly in the suburban areas around Atlanta. Well, does does Abrams deserve some of the credit for the, the victories of the two Georgia Democratic senators? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, She had this notion that the way for Democrats to win was not to run a Republican light um, candidate. The way to win was to change the electorate, to broaden the electorate, to make sure that people who no one had ever talked to, no one had ever solicited were engaged in politics, willing to turn out. And she very much did that. And I think it continues to serve as a model for Democrats in other places. I think it's a mistake to think you can just find the perfect candidate who perfectly fits a state or perfectly fits um, a congressional district. That shows a, a lack of imagination and a lack of appreciation for the ability to shape the political environment, to engage in frequent voters, as she called them, um, to get young people who don't vote in obvious elections um, excited about uh, politics, um, to raise the participation rate of um, many non-white voters. Um, The turnout among Asian American Pacific Islanders in Georgia doubled um, from uh, the previous election in 2020. So I think the notion that America is um, never set in stone, demographically speaking. We are always in the process of becoming uh, something else was a valuable takeaway. And I think the notion that certain states, certain cities, certain kinds of voters are beyond the reach of uh, the Democratic Party really did change. And I would hope that that same spirit lives on. They will need it in 2022 and beyond. And it's another reaffirmation of democracy. The more people you get in, the better off we're going to be. The more points of view, the more it will represent the real aspirations of Americans. And she would say again and again that the way you change healthcare, the way you change climate change policy is you get a different electorate. And you make the electorate um, much more um, in tune with the country at large, where many issues favor Democrats, and you get them to elect then the right people. You're listening to London Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We stand, we rise, we march together for 
justice and equality. Oh yes, we stand, we rise, we march together to protect our democracy. We demand clean water, we demand clean air, better education and better health care. Everybody, we stand, we rise, we march. We're back together with Jennifer Rubin, Washington Post columnist. Uh, her book. Her first book, actually, even though she'd been writing for many years, is Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. It's published by William Morrow. Uh, why do you think so many women with national security or military backgrounds ran successfully for the House in, in 2018? It included Abigail Spanberger and uh, Elaine Luria of Virginia, Elisa Slotkin of Michigan, Mikey Sherrill of, of New Jersey, and Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania. Well, I think each woman, each of these women um, explained it this way. First of all, we have been successful in integrating women into the military and into national security jobs. So, first of all, there was a pool of women um, who potentially could do this, and that was extremely important. Um, but it was also a matter of a ethos of public service. Um these women had generally left or were in the process of leaving their military service, and they suddenly felt like their country was calling them back to duty. They regarded their civilian public service in exactly the same way they looked at their military service. This was a sacred obligation. You took an oath to the Constitution. And it was a remarkable reaffirmation of their spirit of uh, selfless uh, stewardship and selfless service um, that they felt just as compelled to run in Congress as they felt compelled to fight in wars or to serve in the CIA. And one of the things that they discovered is the more they saw civilian politicians in action, the less impressive they appeared. And it dawned on them that they had more than enough experience um, in uh, their service um, to prepare them for office. Um, these people had um, were in charge of many people in their military service time, in some cases, hundreds or thousands of people, that they had a national security background, which is important in federal office, um, that they had organizational skills that were ideally suited for running a campaign and then for serving in Congress. So I think they quickly found out that the gap between military service and civilian service was not as wide as they had imagined. And that, like many of these other women, they took to heart the notion that if they didn't get in the game and they didn't contribute, uh, we would be in serious danger as a country. Well, they flipped uh, all flipped House uh, seats that had been held by Republicans and uh, wound up being called the five badasses, although they're a relatively moderate. Have they worked together? And because they've gotten much less publicity than the squad, the the four progressive congresswomen, Ilan Omar, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Rashida Tlaib and, and Ayanna Presley. 
That is very true. Um, I think to her credit, AOC has become um, just a masterful at social media and at uh, messaging. Um, but these women, um, first of all, did um, kind of hang together once they got into office. Um, they continued to chit chat over uh, email and other uh, social media platforms. Um, they considered one another's advice on various issues. And when it came to impeachment, they made a huge difference. Um, these were people, again, from swing districts who many of their constituents had voted for Donald Trump, but had also voted for them. And they were not eager for an impeachment fight, which they correctly noted was not going to result in his removal. So they held back for a very long time. And it was not until the discovery of the so-called perfect phone call between uh, Trump and the president of Ukraine that they really felt the republic was in danger, that we could not allow a president to extort an ally for the sake of digging up dirt or creating dirt on a political appointee, that if they did nothing, this would take a terrible toll on our democracy. And so Together with five colleagues, they wrote a opinion piece for the Washington Post, and then they called up Nancy Pelosi and said, we're really there on impeachment. And within a very short period of time, I think it was a day or maybe two, um, finally, the Democratic leadership in the House said, all right, this is something that we then need to do. So at a very critical time, these moderates really um, kind of tipped the balance in favor of pursuing impeachment. And I think what's critical for voters and for political watchers to understand is that while AOC and others are um, certainly dynamic, certainly personable, certainly um, filled with ideas, they don't switch seats. And the name of the game is picking up the other guy's seats. Um, and these women, as you correctly note, did pick up seats. They swung seats. And to do that, you have to, in many cases, run fairly moderate candidates, or at least candidates who match the profile of their district. And in those instances, it actually really does help a lot to have a military background. I think people who um, may have voted for Trump um, but weren't thrilled with him and were willing to vote for them, seeing a woman who was moderate, seeing a woman who had national security uh, credentials was very reassuring to them, and they were willing to ticket split. But, but does um, the difference between the badasses and the squad also reflect a racial divide, or is it an urban-suburban divide or a combination of the two? I think all of those factors um, play a part. Um, we start with the realization that although women have increased their numbers, they're still only about 25% of the House of Representatives. And that's an appallingly low number, um, much below where our European allies um, in their parliamentary systems have come out. So you're starting with a relatively um, small group. And you are right that due to gerrymandering, due to um, housing discrimination, due to many, many factors, um, we have sorted ourselves in many cases by race so that a urban Bronx slash Brooklyn district like 
uh, AOCs is going to be much more diverse than a district for Elise Lotkin, um, who may have uh, many individuals who are uh, people of color, but not predominantly. And I do think that it's um, evidence that of the divides that we have between rural and urban, between black and white, that we need to think seriously about how we draw election districts, how we do our politics, so that we're not um, electing people who um, frankly don't understand how other people live and other people think about issues. But have we so, seen a reaction uh, when in the 2020 election when we got Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert? That is exactly the, the uh, dilemma that women face, that there are those people who are as nuts, if not nuttier, than their male counterparts, that there are women who have marinated in the disinformation goop of right-wing media, that there are women who are convinced that Christianity is at risk, that their way of life is in danger. And those people have popped up as well. And that's a unpleasant truth, but it is an affirmation that women are not one-dimensional. They have many different issues and interests. And women, like all people, are, to some degree, uh, differentiated by education level, by religion, by geography, um, by race. And that I think in the future, as the resistance or the pro-democracy movement, whatever you would like to refer to it, um, you know, uh, continues on, they do have to think seriously about how to reach different types of women. The overall message is democracy. The overall message is um, the protection of a diverse America. But, uh, but uh, uh, there, was a news, uh, there was a news report from the uh, Trump Iowa rally in which a woman a pro-Trumper was uh, interviewed and she said we're going to have a civil war she was predicting it and uh, looked like she was looking forward to it well that is an unfortunate um, result of years of polarization and radicalization um, that we have many people who now feel that way and it's a real uphill struggle. Um, to his credit, Joe Biden tried to run a campaign that way. Um, and to some degree, he did reach people who were not actually inclined to vote Democratic, winning Arizona and winning uh, Georgia. Um, but we have many, many forces pulling us apart and radicalizing us. Uh, everything from gerrymandering to social media um, to the money-making gambit of right-wing media that emphasizes these differences, that pulls people apart, that radicalizes them, that makes it um, virtually impossible to compromise with people of a different political party or people in a different region of the country. And this remains one of our great challenges. And uh, there's no magic bullet. There's no one thing that's going to solve it. Um, but I do think um, one of the takeaways I had from this book was movements that are grassroots, that grow up instead of down, are best equipped 
to organize people, to relate to people, to get people who may have other differences on the same team. And I think to a large degree, um, the solution to polarization, to radicalization is going to have to come not from Washington, but in towns and city and state organizations and civic groups and efforts um, to um, have dialogue with one another. And uh, certainly that's part of the success of the women in the resistance. My guest on today is Leonard Lopez at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His Washington Post columnist and MSNBC contributor Jennifer Rubin, who's written a book called How Women Saved Democracy, or Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. It's published by William Morrow. Uh, 2020 was the first year that a group of women sought the presidential nomination, and that included four senators, Gillibrand, Harris, Klobuchar, and Warren. What were the dynamics of so many different kinds of women debating each other? And uh, might things have been different if they hadn't split the vote, do you think? Well, that is an interesting question. Do they need only one one woman candidate? But I think the advance in 2020 was that you don't just have one woman and who becomes the woman candidate, that women are allowed to be like men, um, individuals. They're allowed to have their own views. They're allowed to have their own experiences. And I think the normalization and the understanding that women in the highest position in office and in campaigns for the highest position in office um, are rightfully there was a gain. And I think having four women who didn't look alike, who didn't talk uh, similarly, who didn't agree on all policies issues um, was refreshing and was helpful. Um, They had an uphill fight because many in the party who I spoke to, including women, would say to me, well, we just need a white guy this time. It's too risky. We have to get rid of Donald Trump. We have to go with someone safe. So they were afraid and that nominating a woman might mean losing again. Correct. Uh, but, uh, and our, this our, notion of what is safe um, really speaks to a mindset that people have been accustomed to about what someone in power looks like, um, who is going to be a credible uh, political leader. And that created a severe handicap, I think, for all of these women as they struggled to make the case that um, they were as safe um, because they had the ability to bring together voters. They were as safe as Joe Biden because they knew how to do the job and they knew how to attack um, Donald Trump. And in the end, it wasn't enough. Um, And I think um, the way women candidates were covered and are covered um, still is quite problematic. And I am hopeful that with a woman vice president um, who is seen in the halls of power and is seen with the military and is seen doing her job, um, that some of these cliches, some of this framing will fall by the wayside. But are um, women candidates held to a different standard than men? Weren't issues of likability and electability thrown at Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris in a way that they're rarely used for for men? And then much of the push, pushback came from the right, but also from fans of Bernie Sanders, who were very critical of Warren. Exactly. Well, 
Stacey Abrams had something very amusing to say to me about um, the kind of candidates that run. She said, men fall out of bed one day, have a good hair day and decide to run for president. <laughs> Women agonize. Are they experienced enough? Do they have enough white papers? Do they have detailed plans enough? And so the type of candidate you get um, sometimes varies dramatically according to gender. Remember, we had people who had never run for any office in the person of Tom Steyer and uh, Mr. Chang. Um, and they didn't think that there was any problem running for office without any experience with not really very much in the terms of policy provisions. But Elizabeth Warren sure came prepared and she came with her stack of um, policy provisions and whatever she put out there, there was a demand to be more specific to be more uh, forthcoming. And rather than turn around to say to Bernie Sanders, for example, show us your math um, about really how you're gonna pay for all of this. That really didn't happen, but it happened to Elizabeth Warren. And I think there is a difference in the degree to which women feel compelled to be forthcoming at a granular level to prove their worth, to prove that they are entitled to be there. Whereas, you know, someone like Tom Steyer can just kind of trip along into a debate and show up um, with not much more than a few lines and a lot of money to get him uh, higher in the polls. So I think those remain, you know, big challenges. Um, And I think, you know, it's funny how far we've come in just a year, because as we see it now, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are working quite cooperatively um, in uh, the Senate. But of course, they were pitted against one another in the 2020 presidential election. And for uh, better or worse, and I I certainly thought for worse, um, there grew up around Sanders a mostly white, mostly male, mostly young um, group of rather vicious online users who were colloquially referred to as the Bernie bros. And they went after people. They went in a very personal way, in a very, uh, you know, un- uncouth and uh, rude way and sometimes in a threatening way. Um, and they really demeaned Elizabeth Warren. They, um, you know, use the snake emoji as if she was some kind of traitorous character uh, on uh, Twitter and other platforms and would go after people who criticized their guy. Um, and that's a whole nother kettle of fish, the problem well, of social I, media. I only have just a, a couple of minutes left uh, for this, but I, I was wondering what you think about the role of the media. For example, your article in the Washington Post yesterday was about how the punditocracy has repeatedly underestimated the House Select Committee on the January 6th attempted coup. Um, and I wonder how you feel that they've covered other issues like women running for office and also the, the Texas abortion ban. My concern is that the media has a heavy, heavy preference for horse race style politics. So every issue, every item becomes who wins, who loses, um, what do you think that you're losing, what does the other side think that they're gaining, and lost in the shuffle is the substance of what we are all discussing. And 
I would like to see far more coverage of the content of uh, major pieces of legislation, which can be transformative, which are hugely important, rather than, you know, who insulted or who followed Kristen Cinema into a bathroom uh, the other day. Um, and when you, I still look at a, a front page, um, but whether you look at a front page or a screen or um, tune in to cable TV, the disproportionate amount of coverage concerns these kind of insider process, political who's up, who's down kind of analysis. And I think it does a great disservice to Americans because they really don't know what is at issue and they don't know um, what is being proposed or not proposed. And I have to and leave it there, unfortunately. Jennifer Rubin is a former labor lawyer who writes reported opinion for the Washington Post covering politics and policy, foreign and domestic. Um, she's also a regular contributor to MSNBC. And we've been discussing her book, which is called Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. It is published by, um, by William Morrow. And it has been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much. It was an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of this show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to check out more of our in-depth one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archives at WBAI.org or go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You can also find links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. I hope you'll consider supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during this difficult time. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't already taken that step to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org online or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you uh, on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Again, that number, 212-209-2950. WBAI is the only station, New York Radio Dial, that's 100% listener-sponsored, but that means, quite frankly, that we rely on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air. It's the way this crazy experiment on completely listener-sponsored radio works. So if you like the sound of no corporate overlords telling us how to do this show, and why not come on board and help us to keep it going. Please consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy at $10 or more a month. But whether you do that or contribute another way, um, please give us that call. We may not have the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at BAI, but the station is refreshingly independent. So call right now, 212-209-2950, or go to give to WBAI to keep Leonard Lopez at large coming to you on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2. And from all of us at the station, to everyone who has contributed so far, thanks. Join us again tomorrow when Brian Miller will discuss his book, Dining in the Dark, a famed restaurant critic's struggle with uh, and triumph over depression. We'll see you then. <laughs>